0: Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Mark, chapter eight. If you want a title for today's message, I've called it "Similar, Yet Different." And we're going to read from verse one through to the end of verse ten. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from afar. Our disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? He said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it works in our lives. Lord, having now worshipped you in song, we now worship you in listening and preaching. Lord, would this be for the audience of one. Would you capture our gaze afresh today from your word? Would you speak to us in your precious name? Amen. So, haven't we been here before? Is it just me or others experiencing some serious deja vu in this moment? Because is this story just like the story in chapter 6 when Jesus also gathers with a great crowd, and in that moment, feeds the 5,000. Takes a few bits of bread, takes a few fish, and feeds the multitude. Are you also not experiencing some serious deja vu in the moment? I mean, at first glance, as we encounter this story, I think you can feel like encountering a movie rerun at Christmas. You know the type, you sit down after Christmas lunch, you gather with your family, you are convinced that there's something coming on the screen that you've never seen before. And as soon as it starts, you realize, I have seen this before. But the rest of the family haven't seen it, so everybody wants to watch it and waste two hours of their life. But for you, you're aware, I don't want to waste any more time of my life because I've seen this before. I think that's what can happen when we come across Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. We can feel ripped off. Surely it's the same story. And yet I want to encourage you today, this is not a rerun. This is a sequel. This story is similar and yet it is also significantly different. And if we pay attention then to what we hear, we will see within these differences that we are not being ripped off at all. Because this is part two. This is a sequel. And as we see that, we'll be freshly amazed, I think, and freshly provoked by all that Mark is offering us up for us here in this, once again, true historical account. It's incredible when you see it for what it is. And so I have two points this morning. Number one, the sequel itself. And then number two, the sequel applied. What difference is it meant to make in our lives? Why has Mark written it here for us? And so number one, the sequel itself and let's pay careful attention to Mark's introduction in verse 1. He says in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. Now we need to understand here that Mark in the way he writes there's not a word out of place. Each word in this introduction is carefully chosen. Because Mark wants us to understand something specific about this story. Specific things that he's going to unpack in the rest of the story for us. And so he begins with the phrase, in those days. Mark wants to give us a timeline. He wants to help us see when this story is taking place. And what he wants to help us see is that this is the same timeline of that which began in chapter 7 verse 24. So you recall at the start of chapter 7, there is a great conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. They're going toe-to-toe, and they're going toe-to-toe over the issue of the source and nature of defilement. What cuts us off from God? The Pharisees and the scribes felt that, you know what, what cuts us off from God is being defiled, and what makes us defiled is like, you know, like your disciples. They don't wash their hands properly, and so they're eating unclean food, and therefore they must be unclean. And Jesus explains to them in no uncertain terms as he goes toe-to-toe with them that what defiles a man is not what goes in from the outside. What defiles a man is our hearts. What cuts us off from God is not what we eat. It's who we are before him. It is a huge confrontation, a huge conflict. And in verse 24 then, Jesus heads directly into the heart of Gentile paganism. As he heads to Tyre and Sidon, the Gentile equivalent of Las Vegas of the day. The Jewish, understood, the Jewish man would understand, or at least thought, that the Gentiles were ethnically unclean by very nature. And so Jesus gives them this walking miracle, this walking illustration of how, listen, I'll show you how unclean they are. I'm going right to them. He does it very deliberately as a Jew. He stands in the middle of Tyre and Sidon because he wants the religious leaders to know that I don't agree with what you're saying at all. What defiles a man is not what goes in, it's what comes out. It's our very hearts. So Jesus deliberately sets off into Tyre and Sidon paying total disregard for the religious leaders and their faulty understanding of defilement. And yet as the story continues in chapter 7 verse 31 you realize this journey that he started in verse 24 is not a brief journey. In fact, it's going to be a very long journey. Jesus heads on to the Decapolis and what you discover is actually if you follow the timeline, this wasn't a short journey. This was 120 miles by foot. I'm English, so 120 miles you have to pull over for a coffee if you're driving. These guys are going 120 miles by foot. And this journey from the Savior is deliberate. It is purposeful. It is intentional. It is in Gentile territory throughout because he wants to show them that his mission is not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles as well. Well, this is happening in those days. He wants to frame it for us about when it is taking place. And he continues, in those days a great crowd gathered you know that doesn't strike us as unusual to start off with because we're used to seeing Jesus by now with great crowds aren't we Jesus is very popular amongst the Jews and so as soon as he's around Galilean villages they all flock to him they come to him in their hundreds and thousands but this is different we're not looking at Jews here we're looking at Gentiles we're looking at pagans People that are far away from Jesus. See, in chapter 5, you will remember that Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. Do you remember that story? Legion. And he rebukes the demons and lets it go into all the pigs and the pigs run off the cliff. Do you remember that? And the guy's in a right mind. Well, at the end of that story, you will note that this man, that demon-possessed man that's been healed, wants to go with Jesus. He wants to go on the boat and wants to be his disciple. Jesus says to him, no, no. You can't come with me. I want you to stay here and I want you to go to the Decapolis and I want you to tell them all that I've done for you and the mercy I've shown on you. Well, it would appear that that man has been pretty successful in what he's done because Jesus is in the Decapolis now many many months on and there are many people coming to Jesus. Why? Because they've no doubt heard about this guy who is demonized that Jesus completely healed. And then in chapter 7, then, we see a crowd coming to Jesus in the Decapolis. They've heard from this man who has been healed of many demons. And they present to Jesus a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment. And they beg him to heal him. Look with me at verse 36. After Jesus healed him, he healed the man that the crowd presented to him. It says, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them the more zealously they proclaimed it. <laughs> I mean, for any of you that have got children, you will know how this phenomena works. The more you ask your kids, do not do that, what do they do? They do that. You don't have to teach them that. They just do that. You say to our kids, kids do not touch dad's phone. It's like a magnet to their hands. You know, Josh has recovered from that now. He's not so bad. But the little ones are still shocking. You know, They just find whatever it is you're asking them not to do. Well, that's what this crowd is like with Jesus. He tells them, don't tell anybody who I am. What do they do? They tell everybody. They're zealously telling everybody. We've met this man who heals people. You need to come and have a look. And so a great crowd has now gathered. Notice a journey which began in the privacy of a Gentile home in chapter 7 verse 2 then became a crowd in the Decapolis in chapter 7, verse 33, and now it has become a great crowd in chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus' popularity is growing, not only with the Jews, but with the Gentiles as well, the unclean. And Mark wants us to realize that, look, it is happening then again. Verse 1, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. He wants to bring about a deja vu moment for us. He wants us to recall something that has just happened two chapters earlier. He wants to make the link. He wants us to feel like, I've been here before. And it's true, there are great similarities in this story to chapter 6. Once again, there's a crowd. Once again, they've got nothing to eat. And yet, there's some profound differences. And one profound difference in particular is we're not in Galilee here. We're in the Decapolis. So we're not looking at Jews. We're looking at Gentiles. In their thousands around Jesus. And what then is taking place here would have been utterly inconceivable... And unexpected and stunning to all that looked on. Because Jesus in this moment is with the dogs. The Jews don't even think that he's come for them. But there are thousands of unclean people around him. And Mark wants us to see it. He wants us to be there with Jesus and observe. In verses 2 through 4 then we see The great dilemma that begins to take place. Look with me at verse 2. It says, He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. See, this Gentile crowd is not simply curious They are wildly enthusiastic about Jesus. How do we know? Well, we know because some of them have traveled a great distance to be with him. They've come from afar. That's why Jesus says, hey, we just can't send them off on their way. They won't make it home. They'll faint on their way. Why? Because they've come a long way. When people travel, it's because they want to see that person. They want to observe that person. They want to hear what they have to say. Some of them have traveled a great distance, but more even than that, It appears they have completely forgotten about the issues that are taking place in their bellies. They've been with Jesus three days. They've ran out of food. No one in the crowd is complaining. I have a family of seven. If there is more than three hours, somebody is complaining that there is a lack of food. Jesus has gone three days talking to this crowd, loving this crowd, showing this crowd who he is. No one's complaining about food. No men, no women, no children moaning about food. Why? Because they're seriously excited that they're with Jesus. Look at this man. Listen to this man. See what this man does. And so Jesus, in initiative and concern, says to his disciples, Hey, we need to feed these guys. They've been with us three days. They're not complaining, but we need to care for them. We need to provide some food for them. In verse 4 then, the disciples respond as follows. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? You know, when you first read that, at least when I first read that, you can begin to wonder how on earth the disciples can be so dull. I mean, where were they? Two chapters before, 5,000 people, few loaves, a few fish, and Jesus multiplies it and they feed the crowd. And yet it would appear at first glance that they've completely forgotten about that. They, they've had a brain explosion and they can't remember that they were there. Is that, is that psychologically possible? Well, I submit to you and I would argue, I don't think they've forgotten at all. In fact, actually, I think this question reveals great growth in the disciples. Because I think this question, this response, is actually completely different to the response that they gave to Jesus just two chapters earlier in chapter 6. See, in chapter 6, I want to refresh your memory a moment. In chapter 6, the disciples' response to Jesus is one of skepticism and sarcasm. Jesus is preaching to the Jews, 4,000 of them, plus women and plus children, and at the end of the day, the disciples play the part of Captain Obvious, because the disciples knock Jesus on the shoulder. They interrupt him as he's speaking to the crowd and say, hey, Jesus, can we have a chat a minute? Look, look, you know, we know you can walk on water and stuff, and that's pretty impressive, but here's the thing. It's getting a bit dark, and you may not have noticed, but they're getting hungry, and there's nowhere to eat food around here, so, you know... Might be good to do something. And their assessment of what they should probably do, their recommendation to Jesus is, hey, I think just send them home. You know, if you send them off now, they'll probably get home in time. They can have some food at home. I think they were totally unprepared then for the moment when Jesus looks them in the eye and says, hey, I've got an idea. You feed them, (laughs) we feed them. And their response is a response of sarcasm and skepticism. They're irritated with the Savior when they say to him, so shall we go then with 200 denarii and buy bread and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii is like six months' wages. They're being sarcastic with him. They're playing with him. You know, what a joke. Yeah, well, sure, we'll just feed him. Hey, kids, anybody got a happy meal? You know, it's, it's ridiculous. It's skeptical. It's sarcastic with the Savior in this moment. They're mildly irritated with him. Yeah, for sure. But their response here is very different. Their response here in tone and in content is completely different. David McKenna, in his commentary, says there is a world of difference between this question and the one they asked at the first feeding. I believe that's correct. The first feeding, their response was one of skepticism and a sarcasm. I think this response is one of humility. And faith. Because this question isn't a loaded question of sarcasm and skepticism. This is a deferential question. It's in effect a rhetorical question. And it's a deferential question because they realize listen, we, we can't feed them. There's nothing we can do. They're not irritated or, or cross with the Savior in the moment. They're simply acknowledging the reality that we will not be able to feed them. We've learned by now that this is way, way beyond our means. And yet, Lord, we've been here before. And we know if it's your will, you can feed them. This is a deferential question. And so how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's said with a smile, Lord, we can't do it. But we've been here before. And we know one who can. William Lane, in his commentary, says it would have been presumptuous for the disciples to have assumed that Jesus would, as a matter of course, multiply a few loaves as he had done on an earlier occasion. You know, when we read the Gospels, we can see Jesus is like a miracle vendor machine. You know, you just put your money in, you get a miracle. But that's not the way it was. He didn't do miracles just all the time, moment after moment, hour after hour. These disciples were with Jesus three years. He's not just a human miracle vendor. And so they knew, Lord, we won't be able to feed him. It's way beyond us. But if it be your will, you can. We know you can. They weren't presuming on it, but they knew he could. And so what we have here, I think, is growth. Now, as we will see next week, it is a fragile growth because in chapter 8, verses 17 through 21, they blow it again already. The circumstances are a little bit different. They understand, oh, big crowd, few loaves, few fish. I've seen this before, you'll be able to do it. The circumstances change a little bit, and it's like, nope, dunno, oh no, what are we going to do? So it's a fragile growth, but it's a growth. And in Sovereign Grace, we celebrate a growth. We celebrate a lean, and this is a minimally a lean of a growth. The disciples are growing. And in verses 5 through 7, then the Savior. Provides. Read it with me. And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them he said that these also should be set before them. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there for this? But I think we can grow familiar with these moments of miraculous power, but this would have been amazing. If you'd rocked up to Hornsby yesterday and there were 4,000 people there that were very hungry and one guy rocks up and says, hey, there's a few loaves, a few fish, praise over them and then starts to feed the masses, you would have remembered that day for the rest of your life. That's what Jesus is doing right here. This is who he is in his majesty and in his splendor. He can provide for the multitudes. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? Wouldn't you have loved to have seen or maybe even been a disciple in this moment to be an individual who realizes we got nothing. But hey, you seem to want to divide that food up, so I'll come to you and I'll help you distribute it because that's what you want me to do. And then you go out to the crowds and you just keep giving it away. And Man, they're being fed and you keep going back for more food. There's more food. What an experience this must have been for the disciples. As they're aware, we have nothing. We've got no game on this whatsoever. But for 4,000 of you, you're getting fed and we're just the messengers. We just pass it all on. What an experience that must have been for them. Charles Adam Spurgeon effectively captures that experience for the disciples when he writes the following. He says, The disciples had the special happiness of handing out the bread to the vast host who gratefully received the blessing. The twelve were very popular men that day, I warrant you. And they were looked upon with great envy by all who surrounded them. Oh, was it not a high privilege to distribute food among so many hungry men, women and children? They must have been flushed with excitement and filled with delight. I know I should have been. To go among a crowd of eager hungry people and to feed them to the full is a work an angel might covet. It is wonderful how God works by our hands and yet his own hand does it all. Isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful how God works by our hands and yet his own hand does it all. We've all experienced that, haven't we? Moments when we're playing our part in serving the church, playing our part in serving the family, playing our part in building the local church, playing our part in proclaiming Christ and him crucified. And we're aware, he's used my hands, this is unbelievable. And yet behind our hand It's always his. He's the one that's doing it all. He's the one that's doing the blessing. He's the one that's doing the feeding. He's the one that changes lives. That's what the disciples are experiencing in this moment. They must have experienced many, many high fives coming their way as food was given out again and again and again. And every time they must have been shaking their heads thinking, I did nothing. This is amazing, right? Look at what he's done. Here, keep eating. Well, in verse 8 then, the story concludes. It says, And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. (laughs) See, here's what Mark wants you to see here in this verse, and I don't want you to miss this. Here's what he's seeking to placard before our eyes. He wants to help us see that the Savior's provision wasn't merely sufficient, it was abundant. It wasn't merely enough, it was overflowing in abundance. For all were satisfied, 4,000 men, women and children are deeply satisfied and then when they can't eat anything else, when there is no room left in their bellies, the baskets of food are collected up and seven basketfuls are collected. Now, note this in the Greek, this is a completely different word for basket than it is used in chapter 6. Chapter 6, the Greek word used is for a small basket, little hampers. In chapter 8, the Greek word used is the same in that of Acts 9, where Paul is lowered down from the wall of Damascus to escape him. He ain't going to do that in a hamper basket, okay? That's a man-sized basket. It's a huge basket. It's like what we go up in hot air balloons in. It's a huge basket, Seven massive basketfuls left. Everybody's eaten to their fill. Seven huge man-sized baskets brimming over with fish and bread that have been left over from what people can't eat. He wants to help us see that the Savior's provision wasn't merely sufficient, it was abundant. So at the start of this journey, in chapter 7, verse 24, we see a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile, talking about crumbs. She recognizes, Lord, before you, I've got nothing. I don't deserve anything. But Lord, even the dogs, even the Gentiles, we get to eat the crumbs off the table, right? By the end of the journey... The Savior himself seeks to help her see and all that we're looking on, I haven't come just to give you crumbs. I've come to give you bread, all that you can eat. Eat to your fill. And hey, I'm not only going to provide what you can do, I'm going to have an abundance left over, because that's the type of king I am. She prays for crumbs. He gives her a feast. That's our king. That's our God. So, number two, the sequel applied. Why is this story here? What is it that Mark wants us to learn from this story? And why then has he penned in such detail this wonderful sequel for us? Why? Out of everything that has taken place, why this one? Three reasons. Number one, as to why. Why the story? Well, number one, to reveal the unique identity of Jesus to us. To reveal the unique identity of one Jesus of Nazareth to all who have ears to hear. See, this miracle, just like all the other miracles in the Gospel of Mark, is here to placard before our eyes the unique identity of one Jesus of Nazareth. It's what these miracles are all here for. He wants us to see this is him. This is the king you've been waiting for. And look how unique he is. So the healing of a man with an unclean spirit and the cleansing of the leper, the healing of the paralytic and the man with a withered hand and the man with a legion of demons in him, the calming of the storm and walking on water, And the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the woman, and Jairus' daughter, and the Syrophoenician's woman daughter, they're all here to reveal the unique identity of Jesus Christ to us, as is this story. When we read in verse 4 from the disciples, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? We should be reacting as the crowd, I don't know, we wouldn't be able to do it. No human being could do that. And then, as we see Jesus performing this miracle, we should go, That's him. That's amazing. Look at his authority. He has authority over demons. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over death. He has authority over food. He has authority over nature. He can do anything. Why? Because he's the king, he's the Christ. He's the saviour. You see, this miracle, just like the others, are preparing us for the climactic midpoint of Mark's gospel. The climactic midpoint which we will encounter just in two weeks' time, in chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, when Peter, in response to Jesus' question of, who do you say I am? has a moment of divine revelation, divine illumination, and says to him, you're the Christ. From that moment on, this whole book is going to change. Because the question that's placarded before our eyes then is not, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? It's, what has he come to do? The whole thing changes. And we're nearly at that midpoint where the whole book changes. And yet before that change arrives, I don't want you to miss this question. Who is he? He's the king. I don't want the sovereign grace to miss this moment as if to just grow familiar with, yeah, check it out, yeah, he performs all these miracles. Great, thanks. No. Sovereign grace, day by day by day, in everything you walk through in your life, not when we're all gathered as a family, but when you're by yourselves. This is your God. This is Him. This is the one who's in your boat. This is the one who cares for your every need. This is the one who knows your thoughts before they even come to your mind. This is the one who knows about the storms you're going into, knows about the storm you're in. This is the one who has the power To heal people and prevent nature from doing what it's going to do. This is the one who can walk on water. This is Him. It's so easy to teach our kids it. Son, you just need to have faith. God is massive. He's the one that parts the Red Sea. And then look at your budget and panic as to what am I going to do? Is that not hypocritical? My friends, this is Him. He's trying to help us see. This is your God. You may not understand each and every one of your storms, for his ways are higher than our ways. But we must know who. This is him. Our creator. Our king. Who will never, ever let us go. Mark wants to help us see the unique identity of Jesus. Jesus. But more than that, number two, he also wants to convince us about how Jesus feels about us. He wants to reveal his unique identity and his splendor and majesty, but he also wants to convince us about how this Jesus of Nazareth feels about you. He feels about us as a group, and indeed us as individuals. See, there is no doubt that there are many similarities in this story to chapter 6. There are. Once again, a great multitude. Once again, a few bits of bread, a couple of fish. Once again, the disciples doing the serving as Jesus feeds the masses. And yet there is also a profound difference. And that difference is the reality that this is the Decapolis. And so this crowd is made up entirely of Gentiles. And Mark wants us to see that. Because he wants to see that in effect, as Gentiles, we're in the crowd. We're the crowd in this one. We weren't really the crowd in chapter six. That was the Jews. In chapter eight. We're in the crowd. Your faces are positioned behind the 4,000 in this moment. See, Mark wrote this gospel for a Roman Gentile audience. It wasn't written primarily to Jews. It was written to Roman Gentiles. And as he pens this, there's no doubt in my mind that he wanted them to see and perceive how God feels about them. You may feel, not growing up as a Jew, that you're cut off from God. And in effect, you are. Because what defiles a person isn't what goes into them, it is what comes out of them. But I want you to know something. This is how God feels about you. Let me tell you about the time when he sat 4,000 people down and fed them to the full. Because he loves them. To this Roman Gentile crowd, Mark wants them to help them see, this is you. And in God's kindness, he's breathed this out through Mark because I believe he wants us to see it as well. Our faces are in the crowd. See, maybe you're here today and you are unclear in some way about how God feels about you. For whatever reason, maybe you are going through a season or even a prolonged time where you're unclear about how the savior feels specifically about you. Let me tell you how he feels about you. He passionately and personally and particularly loves you. How do I know? How do we know? Well, because it's here. Because by God's grace, it's here in the compassion that he states in verse 2. Look, he says, verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd. It's so easy to overlook that because you think, yeah, got it. You've talked about compassion a few times, Dave. Got it. That's great. so easy to grow familiar with it, overlook it, not think that there's anything profoundly different about this one. But there is something profoundly different about this one. This is the first time Jesus says he's having compassion on someone. Prior to this moment the disciples have observed it. They've seen it, they've noted it, they've written about it. But this is the first moment where Jesus himself says, "I have compassion on them." "I'm telling you, I have compassion on them." And notice who it's to. To the gentiles. To us, to a people who are far from him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon captures the significance of this when he says the following to his church when commenting on this text. Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, Spurgeon then in effect interrupts himself and says the following, Stop for a moment. Prepare your ears for music. Jesus said, I have compassion on the multitude. Oh, the sweetness of that word, compassion. If Jesus spoke thus to his people whilst here, he equally says it now that he is exalted on high. For he has carried his tender human heart up to heaven with him. And out of his excellent glory, we may still hear him saying then, I have compassion on the multitude. For there is our hope, that the heart through which the spear was thrust, and out of which there came blood and water, is the fountain of hope to our race. When Jesus says he has compassion on the crowd, He's looking at Gentiles, not only to this crowd, but to the crowd down through the ages that would be cut off from him. And here's his edict. I have compassion on them, including you. That's not all. We also know his clear compassion for you specifically and personally because of where he's going next. In verse 9 we read, and there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of You See, this journey for Jesus to Gentile territory has now finished. Well, where's he going now? Why is he headed to Dom Where is he going? Now, I'll tell you where he's going. He's on his way now to Jerusalem and to a hill called Calvary and to a cross where his body, just as he has broken the bread in two in verse 6, would now be broken for you. Such is his compassion and love that he's aware I've, I've finished now. The Syrophoenician's woman's daughter, she's been healed. The deaf man with a speech impediment, the crowds have been coming. I've sorted that out. And now the crowds of Gentiles have revealed my compassion on them. So I'm on my way to Dharmonath. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm heading towards a cross. We're just like that bread. My body will be broken for you. Why? Because I love them. My friends, there should be not one of us in this room that wonders about how Jesus feels about us when we realize now he heads to Calvary for you. CJ Mahaney says it this way. Oh, listen. This miracle and these words point to the greater miracle of Jesus giving himself as our sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing substitute. For he not only declares his compassion for sinners like us, he demonstrates his compassion by his death on the cross. Therefore, fellow Gentile sinners, we should be convinced of his compassion. We should be convinced of his compassion for sinners like you and me because Christ died for us. Christ died us. Instead of us. And Christ died. Because he loved us. this story is here. To reveal to us the unique identity of Jesus of Nazareth. To convince us of how he feels about us. And it's also here I think number three. To provoke us. To tell others about him. See Mark chapter 8. Ultimately, this was another training moment for the disciples. A day would come when they would be taking the bread that Jesus has given them through his life to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. A day would come when they would be sharing the gospel with all who would listen. They would be building churches for the sake of the gospel. And this was a training moment for them where Jesus continues to help them see, you won't be able to do this by yourself. By yourself, you've got nothing to offer them, but come to me. I will give you the bread that you need. And they're already starting to grow in that and starting to show glimpses, glimpses that they're understanding the lessons. So they say to him, listen, we can't feed them. But we know a man who can. Lord, do you want to? And then they stand there with their baskets and start to give it out as excited disciples aware that you can eat your feed. He will satisfy you. He will help you. He will engage with you. He will save your lives. It's all training for the moment where they would go to the nations. Where they would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, proclaiming Christ and giving out the bread that would give people life. Well, now it's our turn. The disciples have gone. But we remain. There's still bread to be given out. Bread that will truly satisfy people. Bread that will change people's lives. Bread that we're not just meant to sit on and gather around and say, oh, I love being a part of church. Just eat. Everybody eat. This is lovely. But bread we're meant to go, this is amazing. Let's go. Let's give it out. This will change people's lives. And Spurgeon speaks about this in his congregation. Ex- wisely exhorts his congregation in this way, and I cannot improve on it. So be provoked by him. He says this to his congregation. So, get to work, he said. Get to work, each one of you, with your bread breaking. Get to work with your bread breaking, for this is Christ's way of feeding the multitude. Let each one who has himself eaten Divide his morsel with another. Today, I would add this week, fill someone's ear with the good news of Jesus and his love. Endeavor this day, each one of you, to communicate to one man, woman or child somewhat of the spiritual meat that has made your soul glad. For this is our master's way. Will you not drop into it? You cannot propose a better None can contrive a method more likely to be successful, more honorable to your Lord, and more beneficial to yourself. And so, that's why the sequel. It's real similar to chapter 6, and yet it is profoundly different. And so would we see ourselves in the crowd then, And would we freshly revel in his unique identity? Would we be freshly convinced about how he feels about us? And would we be freshly provoked to take that bread and give it out? And as we do, may grace abound to us all. Amen. Let's pray.